Stop Booking Around. I'm John Cronshaw, and I'm joined again by another guest. I've got Claire Sager with us today. She's the fantasy author of A Thief and a Gentlewoman. Now, this book is huge. I want to talk to her about completing big projects and also the kind of different methods that you use depending on, you know, the size of a project you're doing because one size doesn't fit all. Your book, I worked this out, I think you mentioned a while ago that your book is 170,000 words, which is the same length as my entire Wasteland trilogy and the prequel novella. Uh, (laughs) Uh yeah, it's 185,000, but yeah. Oh, okay. So with the so, short Sorry. Let's well. <laughs> just add another novelette onto that. <laughs> so yeah, my entire Wasteland series. Yeah, there you go with the short stories. Yeah, but I, I think I envy you being more sensible than me <laughs> in doing that. How did you manage that project then? Because I mean, that is a lot of words and a big undertaking in terms of both first drafting and then I cannot imagine how long this must have taken you to edit. Yeah, it is a bit of a beast. It's a little bit of an odd one because it's the first novel I've completed despite, you know, sort of when I was much younger. See, if I had had this podcast back when I was a teenager, I'd have finished the first book much sooner, but there you go. Um, You have to time travel and send it back. Yeah, I'd, you know, sat down to write novels since about the age of about 12 or so, and only this is the first one I've ever completed. So it was probably slower than I could do it now because, you know, I was learning a lot of things along the way and real life gets in the way, so I'd draft it and then wouldn't touch it again for a year or something like that. I mean, if you go from when I first started drafting it, that was in 2009. And then obviously I finished editing it and released it this year. And this is 2018, in case you're listening in the future. It's almost hard to sort of give it a time scale because of that. But the way I sort of ended up getting to the end of it, you know, I think if I were to sit down and, and put all that time together in one block, it maybe would have been a couple of years, I think. And drafting wise one of the main things I do nowadays I've kind of learned from going through all of that process is you know I've used a lot of the tips from things like um the Rachel Aaron book have you read that one two two k to 10k is it oh yeah 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 I have read that yeah I picked that up when I was still working on the first draft of this and yeah all the tips in that I found so helpful and really helped me to improve my word count rate. I suppose a lot of the issues that you get with writing become magnified when you write such a big project. So not only do you get sort of more mileage out of any increase in your writing speed you can get, but also the more time you can get and the more into the right mindset that you can get to spend time writing rather than maybe procrastinating or doing other things. So I kind of worked on all of those things to help me really get through the draft and then eventually through the edit as well. I think the edit took me from getting my developmental editor's feedback. I think I took about a year to, from doing that to publishing. With the process then, I mean, was this something that you outlined and plotted beforehand or was this a, you just sat down and wrote? And things appeared. <laughs> no, I, I'm a massive plotter, definitely. For me, that's proved to be one of the biggest differences from what I've done with this book. And like there's a novelette that goes with it that I give out to my reader group and so on and started work on book two. All of these have got a very detailed outline whereas stuff that I tried on as a teenager and even in my 20s 
you know, I was trying to pants it. And just that for me, that doesn't work. I think it's one of those things you have to do what works for you and, and trying out. That's why I definitely advocate trying out different techniques in all areas of writing. But yeah, for me, I definitely had to have an outline and it was very detailed one. One of the big things with a long book like this and, and you know, <laughs> this is book one of a four book series as well. So the whole story in itself is going to be ridiculously long. <laughs> is, you know, you've got a lot of moving parts, you've got a lot of characters, you've got your central plot, but then you also have your subplots that all have to weave in and keeping track of all of that stuff over such a long story. I don't know how anyone would ever do it, pantsing it, to be honest. So yeah, I, I do a very detailed outline. I have scene by scene exactly what's going to be in there. So for book one, I did the outline and so on, went ahead and drafted it and then got a developmental edit and had to change a load of things. And I actually ended up adding 65,000 words wow. in that edit. And I'd rewritten scenes and characters and things like that as well. But what I'm doing for book two, and I think I would suggest as a good idea for anyone, like I said, especially if you are working on such a longer a long piece. I've actually done the outline and then put that past my developmental editor at that point. That's a very good idea, especially as it takes such a long time to draft things. <laughs> it's like it's almost <laughs> like you're throwing away so much work. I, I don't understand why people aren't more inclined to do that to kind of go on the outlining stage because I think it'll be cheaper. You know, it's a fairly detailed outline. So for book two, um, I think it was about. 11,000 words, and that was significantly cheaper than her editing the 120,000 words of book one. So, yeah, absolutely. It's a lot quicker for her to get it back. I think she gave it back to him about two weeks as well, whereas her edits on a full book for me would be more like eight weeks, again, because of the, she's, she, normally she works on a, a sort of four-week turnaround, but because my books are so long, she does eight weeks for me. And the other thing as well, the great benefit about having her look at the outline and identifying problems at outline stage and fixing them then is it's so much easier to move a bullet point paragraph from one part of the book to the other or to change it or to scrap it than it is, like you said, if you've spent hours writing three scenes that all need to be scrapped or completely rewritten because you've got a character completely wrong or the event's completely wrong. And, the, and that also goes for me about pantsing versus plotting. You know, if you've already planned it out and you know what you need to write, you know who done it, you know what clues you need to seed in different parts of the story, that again just saves you dead ends and writing yourself into a corner in future. And like I said, you know, if you want to, to pants it, that all power to you, but I don't know how you do it. I'm amazed at people who do. <laughs> it's weird for me for the series that I'm on at the minute. I feel like I've almost gone more towards pantsing and less outlining. Like mm -hmm. my outline for Blind Gambit was nearly 4,000 words for a 60,000 word novel and now, you know, this is going to be a half million word series by the time it's done. Mm. And I got, I think it's 22 bullet points for the series, which is basically 22 sentences where, okay, I know at the end of this episode, this is where it needs to end. And then everything else is up for grabs. <laughs> so it's uh, like, I know the episode I'm writing at the minute, which is episode six, is basically, you know, if you're following the hero's journey, this is mm. the journey to the other world. It's crossing the threshold. So my mm. character is literally on a ship to another land and there's stuff going on in that. It's a standalone story on its own, but then it fits into this 
speak wider structure. Yeah. You know, I look back over the edits and I think, okay, I am actually hitting the... I mean, maybe it's just because I've done it a few times. That's what I was going to say, actually, yeah. yeah. I'm getting the thing of, right, okay, I need... Every scene needs an incisive incident. Every scene needs a progressive complication. And, you know, that's kind of where I'm thinking. And I'm just wondering for yourself, do you have any formulas or something like the hero's journey or uh, you know save the cat or something like that that you follow when you're writing or is it literally I know where I need to go so in book one when I first outlined that um, it was actually for my master's degree so obviously I had sort of input from a lecturer at that point and uh, we did talk a bit about you know three-act structure and things like that and obviously I studied it in, in my BA degree and stuff like that so I think back at that time I did sort of vaguely look at three-act structure. But at that time, I was like, oh, no, it's cramping my art, darling. So, you know, I didn't want to get formulaic. Oh, sweet, innocent, naive Claire that I was. (laughs) So with book one, I didn't really sort of follow a specific structure like that. But... Now I look at it and, and sort of, so that's one of the things I've looked at since finishing book one and have tried to implement into my outline for book two is sort of following more of a structure. And actually, as I was reading up on it more and, and getting into it in more detail, I just sort of think I was caught myself thinking about things that I'd done in book one. And although I didn't sit down to follow a particular sort of structure technique, I suppose, or model, there are definitely things in there. So I go, oh, actually, yeah, I did have, you know, the dark moment and and things like that in book one and I think that sort of thing can come from just internalizing it sometimes you know obviously I was always a really avid reader as a kid and you know how many films we've watched over the years and tv shows and stuff like that so I think you can kind of internalize some of those things so I've outlined book two and book three which is currently with my editor and I used um, K.M. Wyland's Structuring Your Novel I've also read Save the Cat so I (laughs) Basically, I kind of set out and I've read halfway through Into the Woods. Yeah, I'm about halfway through that. I find that one yeah, really difficult. Yeah, a bit heavy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, I think. And and it's quite it's quite beautiful, but it, it's, it feels quite sort of theoretical as well. It feels like something that a university lecturer would be telling me about, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like it kind of, you know, goes into so much depth, whereas actually what I need to know is X, Y and Z. Whereas it's covering all the way from A to Z. So, yeah, I kind of pulled in a bit of Save the Cat and a bit of Take Off Your Pants. Yeah. And I'm just looking at my shelf next to the desk now. Oh, um, Story Grid. I looked a bit at that. But I need to go back and reread that and take sort of notes to kind of distill it a bit more, I think. But, yeah, but yeah it's kind of a bit of all of those. That's one, isn't it? That one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, you could have written this book in like half the space, I think, and given me the same information. But anyway. Um, have you ever read any of Robert McKee's books, like Story and Dialogue? I think they're excellent. Do you know what? I've got one of them in my to-be-read pile. I think it's Dialogue. And I went to pick up Story a while back, and it looks like it was out of print. I generally read fiction on ebook, but I like to read non-fiction in oh, paperback okay. you know, so yeah. I can put in tabs and stuff like that. So I wanted to get the paperback and I was like, oh, so I'll, I'll go back and check in case it was just temporarily out. But yeah. What I like about dialogue especially is that taught me about subtext, <laughs> like in a mm. really useful way. Because, you know, I'd heard about it a lot before, but actually seeing the examples and going, okay, now I understand. <laughs> 
Yeah, and then just watching some good films like Lost in Translation, which I think are mentioned repeatedly on this podcast. But uh, I think you have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that in terms of subtext and dialogue is just like you study that and yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I sort of took those books and because I'm a bit of a nerd for things like this, I did a spreadsheet that's mostly based on the KM Island structuring a novel book. So I've done it so it's a row fit, you know, Act One, Act Two, Part One. Act two, part two, act three, and so sort of divided it into four and then put in roughly where each thing should happen. So each cell in the spreadsheet would be a scene. So that's what I've used to outline books two and three. Yeah, and I found that really helpful. But at the same time, I do always think that once you learn those, you know, it's always that thing of once you've learned the rules, you need to know when to break them. I think, you know, if, if it logically isn't going to make sense for your dark moment or something, you know, one of the particular parts that someone tells you in their in their structuring method doesn't make sense for it to happen there and actually you need it to happen a scene earlier or three scenes later or if it helps you to have it five thousand words later or earlier then i think sometimes you kind of got to make that executive decision as it were so i think i think there's a danger sometimes of people maybe following those things too slavishly yeah well i I think wyland is kind of at the extreme end of that where she'll be like right at 16.5 percent you need to have this plot yeah (laughs) like uh, i don't know have you ever watched life is beautiful it's likely the inciting into that doesn't come until about I don't know, about halfway through the film. So mm. yeah, it's an amazing film. It's really it's just stunning. The whole thing with that is that the first 45 minutes of it is just set up. So you, mm. that the inciting incident does actually give you that gut punch. So it's, uh, yeah, really, really heartbreaking. With the stories then, I mean, how do you find it then? I mean, you mentioned you've got this uh, novelette. I mean, how do you find going from a massive story to something that is what about 10,000 words or something like that oh, I really struggle <laughs> I think I'm just a natural you know even when I was a kid at school and things like that I've always struggled to write short stories to be honest because it's maybe my natural inclination to go towards big ideas and big stories and then you know even as I'm writing down the story or the, the outline and sort of the idea of it and I'm like oh yeah and then that will tie into that and and that can be that and and then that person actually might turn out to be such you know what I mean and so it all becomes quite interwoven and complex as I'm coming up with ideas for stories so yeah. I think that's why I end up you know I've, I've always gravitated more towards writing novels than shorter fiction mm. um, and then why obviously my first one has ended up such a, a monster of one but what I am working on now is my next project, um, because because the Thief and Gentleman is so long, and obviously I've set a precedent for that series and uh, a, a sort of style of book, if you like, for that series. Yeah, I've done the novelette, which I think is about yeah ten or eleven, maybe twelve thousand words that I give to my mailing list. I've done those, and then obviously I've got to continue in that vein for that series. But doing that, I'm not going to get another book out until April or May next year at the earliest. And I kind of don't want to leave things fallow for that time, if you like, in terms of publishing. So I've actually developed a new series I'm also going to be working on alongside. And for that one, I've learnt my lesson because I'm going to do it as rather than one full length novel. It's going to be four novellas that add up you know, eventually I'll publish as one volume and then there'll be four of those. So it'll be 12 books altogether that will all be sort of 20 to 30,000 words. I've outlined the 
overall series and then I've outlined the first four novellas mostly that needs a bit of adjustment and so on and for me that works a lot better because I haven't got the thing of oh it's just a novella because it's part of this you know 12 book series essentially for me I can still come at it with my mad complex ideas and and sort of springboard off into different things without feeling too stifled by working on a short piece that's an interesting that you'd say it'd be stifled it's like uh, <laughs> yeah i don't know i find it more um i really thrive with that thing of knowing that i've got to kind of be disciplined and focused and mm. i find that more beneficial to me to go right i've got to get this done within twenty thousand words rather than 50 or i think as well maybe for me it's not necessarily that i write very sort of purple prose or anything like that you know people a lot of the feet in fact <laughs> The main feedback I got back from my developmental editor and a couple of my initial readers before I edited was that actually I scrimped on description and the pacing was too fast. So I had to actually slow myself down in adding those 65,000 words to make it 185,000. So I think it's not like I'm, I, I sort of bulk it out with excess description, which or, you know, one of those things with some fantasy is that, you can end up with a ton of world building in there that really doesn't mean need to be there. Yes, Tolkien, I'm looking at you. Yeah, I sort of don't tend to do that. So I think it's just a lot, a lot happens. <laughs> is it your methods then with the novellas? Is it, is it basically you, you're really planning just another big novel or are you kind of seeing these as individual stories that all resolve themselves and all that? I'm just kind of wondering if there's any difference in the way you're kind of approaching the shorter stories. Yeah, I've definitely, I've kind of done almost like a nested structure is how I kind of think of it. So the overall series story is split into four. So you've got Act 1, first half of Act 2, second half of Act 2, and then Act 3. So each of those acts are essentially going to be a novel, but then each novel is split into four as well. Again, Act 1. 2.1, 2.2, 2.1, 2.2, and 3. So each of those novellas, like I say, four of them will add up towards one novel. Yeah, I have structured it in a way that the individual book fits that structure. I've definitely had to twiddle around with things a lot more, you know, because I'm sort of breaking the rules with those novellas because, you know, there'd be so, so few scenes compared to what I'm normally used to having. So yeah, I've kind of done that as a bit of a nested structure. I personally like my series when I'm reading to have an overall story if I I hate it when I pick up a a book and it's the second one in the series I've really enjoyed the first one and the second one I like it to directly follow on from book one I know not everybody does but that's my preference as a reader so I like it to be that it continues a an overall story even if the specific events of book one are resolved to an extent but there's still something carrying on into book two i don't really like picking up a book two and then it treats me like i'm a brand new reader so these ones this novella series i'm doing it will be that the first four books you know if you read that first novella you need to read the next novella so I'm kind of I'm trying to sort of balance having not necessarily cliffhangers, but 
that impetus to keep reading like you'd have in a serial. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I'm trying to do with mine, actually. Yeah. You know, having, I'm caught, you know, hooks at the end. So mm. the main point of the story will resolve, but then there's enough that's still open to keep the reader interested. So, for example, I, I don't know, like the first couple of episodes of my series is all about this girl. She's just coming into womanhood and she's, this has basically triggered a whole bunch of things where she's got to get this kind of magical blessing and she's gets an arranged marriage and all of this stuff's going on. She gets the ceremonies and that's okay. And she meets her husband who's horrible and that's okay. But then at the end of each episode, I'm kind of adding in another loop or flipping an assumption on its head. So you're going into mm. the next book going, oh my goodness, what's, <laughs> what's this about? Why, why has this suddenly happened? I mean, there is a thing as well of having a magical awakening occur at the end of an episode. So then you go, ah, <laughs> yeah. hopefully want to like carry on and, you know, because it is building up to that and um, there's all these clues along the way. But, you know, the ending of the episode is, it's fulfilling in the sense that you're getting what you're expecting. But then it's like, that will hopefully then raise several questions for the reader and how is this going to go forward? Why did this happen? And the next episode is about her trying to work out what happened and mm. and that leads on to other things and yeah, another Yeah. Is- exactly. Yeah, I kind of I like to think of it always um come what podcast I was listening to that few years ago now and they kind of spoke about the difference between cliffhangers and game changers. And I like to think of it like that. Buffy, for example, is always the one I think of. Buffy, at the end of one of the seasons, I don't remember which, they introduce Buffy's little sister, or was it the end of an episode? I can't remember. I think it was the end of the series. They introduce her little sister, who just suddenly appears out of nowhere, and you're like, wait, what? For me, that's a game changer because it changes the lay of the land, if you like. It's a new situation, a new circumstance, and you're interested to come back. You're like, well, how has this happened? Where has she appeared from? And how is this going to affect the future? So that, to me, is a game changer. And I said, I think Buffy did that really well on an episode level and on a season level. Whereas, I won't name it, but a few years ago, I read a book and I got to the end of the first book. It was a series, that's fine. And like I said, I do like the story to continue through rather than them to be complete standalones. But this one, the whole of this first book had been leading up to a big battle between essentially the goodies and the baddies. And the end of the book, you get to the place where they know, and that, you know, it's supernatural, so you know it's going to be this date because that's when the full moon is or whatever it was. They go to that place, they start the fight, this character goes running off here and this character has to stay over here and, and do a ritual to stop the gateway opening and for the baddies to come through. And then it stopped. While they're still in the middle of the fight, the other characters run off. This character has just failed in the ritual or was trying to do the ritual. I can't remember. But it stopped literally midway through the fight. And to me, that's a really bad cliffhanger. <laughs> it's not the full story. It's like, I think you need the full story arc. Mm-hmm. And then I think that's a really good way of putting Yeah, the game changer thing. I think you can add that or you can add intrigue. I don't know if you've ever read Gene Wolfe's book of the new son. He basically ends... Every book, it's like a, a journey of this guy called Severian. And at the end of each book, he comes to a gate or, you know, mm. some kind of portal entrance or something. And it's like, 
because it's some weird narration, he's like, ah, dear readers, I understand if you don't want to come along with me anymore. And like, I, I love that because it's, it's resolved whatever was going on mm. in the book, but you are then at this point of you spend- a new thing about to happen and you're intrigued by and curious about it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like you realize you get to the end of the first book and you, you've got to the edge of the city and it's an absolutely massive city that is, I don't know, I think it's probably about the size of our country, you know, it's just one city. There's all these little details that come out mm. as well when you realise, okay, this isn't a medieval fantasy, is it? This is actually a far future science fiction there's robots everywhere. Like, And <laughs> it's like you, you get the rug being pulled from you all the time with it and the unreliable narrator and the weird mm. and um, so that just keeps you intrigued and I don't know, it's like wanting to see more of the world and wanting more rather than just if, if it had gone, he opened the door and then, and then that's the end of the thing. Mm. would have put the book down and never read it again you know but yeah although I had to chuckle to myself when you were saying about the portal thing because it did remind me of and this is like revealing my terrible 90s tv viewing did you ever watch sliders yes 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 (laughs) so if I recall correctly I know that at least it is on one episode if not every episode at the end they would slide to the new place yeah yeah. and you would and did did quantum leap do the same thing yeah and you'd have them just look around and be like, well, what's this place like? And then that was the end of the episode. So, you, you know, you're like, right, well, how are they going to manage in this world that's all flame or whatever it was? Or how is, uh, what's his name from Quantum Leap going to uh, deal with being a woman who's taming lions or whatever it might be <laughs> but the story was already resolved so yes exactly worked, so. yeah with Athena and a gentlewoman for example in that there is a murder and a character is fl- framed for that murder by the end of that book quinn the main character has solved that crime and and resolved that story but the person behind it is although that one person has been who was part of the crime you know has had faced justice there is still somebody who's at large and we know that they've got a bit of um you know they're going to be coming back to solve their beef with that character as it were so i've left a hook open but i have resolved the story of that crime and that framing so like you say it's about having open loops but giving some sense of satisfaction to what you've set up i find this can actually be really um frustrating with scenes i don't know if you've ever read any dan brown stuff <laughs> um, i read the da vinci code yeah back back yeah, when it was you know yeah. such a big thing i, I had a mate when I, when I was doing my phd i had a friend who was doing a his thesis about the Roslyn chapel and basically when you do a phd you kind of have to read everything that you can about this subject and so this was at the time of the Da Vinci Code and there was loads of crap conspiracy books and spin-offs all about oh yeah it's bad timing so, <laughs> yeah I think it, re- it really uh, hampered his work a bit <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah like the, the way that is written is it is just cliffhanger 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 just to get you yeah. to the next page and it's exhausting I, find, I found that book really just you know it's, just, it's I think it's fast-paced, but it's fast-paced mm-hmm. because it just uses a lot of cheap tricks. and. Yeah, and I've, I definitely, I know exactly what you mean. And I seem to recall there were, it was quite a big book. Like, you know, it's very thick, but I think <laughs> part of that was 100 because... Page, 100 words per page or something, wasn't it? Well, yeah, because I seem to recall like a lot of the chapters were really short. 
you know, so a lot of that must have been a blank page where they'd only used part of the page of the chapter and already started a new one kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think it's definitely a balancing act between, and I'd say like in a scene level, at a chapter level, at a novel level, and also I'm going to be serializing four novels into four novellas, each one of them into four novellas. So as a balancing act there between the, each novella, but giving some sort of satisfaction, but still leading the reader through. Um, so I think a couple of my novellas might end up with cliffhangers, but, you know, the next one will be out two or three weeks later, and the end of that set of four novellas will be a game changer rather than a cliffhanger. So, you know, it will, it will, there'll be some sort of satisfaction but and resolution, but there'll be sort of a new thing opened up. But I think it's about balancing those things so it doesn't feel like a cheap trick to the reader because I, I, I felt that way about, you know, reading the Dan Brown and, like you say, for it to not be exhaustingly paced. <laughs> yeah, with my novella series, it's like I've got the first five books. I purposefully resolved that fifth book in a way that would feel like the end of a novel mm-hmm. we're moving on to this kind of next series next uh, kind of section which will be the next mm. five books and you know that ends i know where that's ending i know that that's got a particular kind of satisfying series arc kind of ending mm. there so yeah that nesting thing's a really good way to see it you know with and yeah it's like following a story within stories within stories, isn't it? The different layers of story that all kind of fit together. So one thing that I find weird is I, I think I found my groove with the novella length. I think that is perfect for me in terms of I don't feel like I'm drafting for too long. And I often find that short stories take longer to write than they should, mm. um, if that makes sense. I think that's because they are... Just rec- I don't know, they seem to require a lot more tightness in terms of storytelling and character and on a yeah. product level as well. Yeah, because you've kind of got to, you know, you've still got to have those structural elements in there, but you've got a fraction of the words in which to do it. So I'm similar, yeah, I don't find... Short stories don't take the proportionate number of words... Um, less time and effort to do than something longer <laughs> at all. Yeah, definitely. I'm with you on that one. Yeah. You know, a lot of short fiction is definitely structured differently to the longer pieces. Like, I found this with writing flash fiction is, you know, flash fiction is stories that are uh, under a thousand words and you kind of have to get in and out. And a lot of the stuff that we're told about how to structure a story, sometimes you don't need even a climax in a flash fiction Mm. story. Sometimes it can be the point before the climax where the character has a realisation and that is enough. Same with short stories as well. I mean, I don't know if you've ever looked at Lester Dent's short story structure thing. Like, I find that really useful just because it is the perfect way to think about doing a short story, which is basically you chop it up into four pieces, raise attention each time, have a something of a twist or a revelation at every quarter Um, and then you know end with something unexpected that ties back to the beginning and yeah it's a really cool way of doing it but it just doesn't work once you get past a certain word count you know so you've written this really long book and i don't know you seem a bit like (laughs) not bitter about it but maybe a bit of regret or something there i don't know but i mean what have you learned from this is there anything positive 
about the experience of writing a long book? I suppose I've been kind of mean about long books and you absolutely can write a long book. Maybe some of the benefits are a bit harder to quantify because it's not necessarily, you know, if you write a series of novellas, obviously you've got more chances to make money and things like that, you know. But you can't, if my book's three or four times the length of... um someone else's book I can't charge three or four times the amount so I think it's maybe easier sometimes to see the benefits of writing shorter books because they're more quantifiable but I think some of the benefits of a longer writing a longer work is my plan is to continue writing almost having like a series that has long books and then another series that has those shorter books and alternating between them because I think there's real benefit on both sides so yeah I have sounded like a bit down on long books I do think if you can maintain a pace with them I think they can make really addictive reading so although my book's 185,000 words, which makes the drinking game. Every time you say that number, you should drink. <laughs> a lot of people have commented, like in my reviews and things like that, it's actually really gripping read and very pacey. And people have said that they sat there and they ended up staying up till three o'clock in the morning because they couldn't put it down until they'd finished it, even though it's that long. And I think if you can get that pacing right, then it's really addictive and there's less chance of the reader putting it down. Whereas if you've got a novella series like we were talking about, you know, so you maybe have the same number of words, but it's actually six novellas. Then when they get to the end of that novella, even if you've given them a very tasty cliffhanger that's got them wanting to come back, you know, it's still a signal to their brain. Well, I finished that book and they could put it down and walk away. Whereas if you've got one long book they've not got that, quite that same signal and quite the same sense of finality. You know, you get to the end of a chapter, it's not the same as getting to the, to the end of a shorter book. So I think that's definite benefit. And another thing that's sort of come through on some of my reviews or comments people have made to me on social media is that I think readers feel that they're getting real value for money. So obviously as an unknown author, my first book out, you know, people are getting, I think on, on Kindle it's over 900 pages the paperback is about 650 or something like that. And a lot of people have commented that the font size is small. So it maybe should even have been more than that. But people have said, you know, I feel like I'm getting a lot from it. And that way, you know, for future books in this series, I'll probably keep this one at its current price. But I think, you know, you've kind of done the work then to maybe charge 4.99, 5.99 potentially for future installments. So that's something to maybe think about. At the moment, I don't really have the data. And like I said, it's it's maybe a qualitative thing rather than a quantitative thing. But I feel like it's maybe more immersive because it's longer. You know, they, they feel like they've gone on a real, you know, a long journey with those characters. They've spent hours and hours reading that book. So I don't know. I, my instinct kind of says it's maybe a greater chance to win loyal fans than if you're writing shorter books. You know, not so you can't win loyal fans, but I think they'd maybe have to pick up a few of your books before they became a loyal fan if you're talking about shorter books. And also, the most important thing is that I've now got a massive book on my shelf that's got my name on it. The spine is like one and three quarter, nearly two inches. You could probably break someone's nose with this book, like, and this is just a paperback. So, you know, it does feel like an, an achievement and, and, you know, it looks quite impressive on your bookshelf. So that's another pro of doing a longer book as well. So don't be put off by, by what I've said so far. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You did the masters and things. I mean, did you do much in terms of uh, short story writing there or anything like that? Or has it all been just focused on the novel side? Yeah. So when I did masters in that first, uh, sorry, when I did my BA, sorry, because I, I did my BA 
worked for, I think, a year and then went back into my master's at the same place. So it does kind of all run together a little bit in my head. Yeah, my BA, you kind of, in your first year, you did poetry, screenplays and prose fiction as well as various like creative non-fiction stuff so you know you kind of had a chance to try everything which I thought was really handy for the BA Um, and the masters you chose from the start whether you wanted to specialize in uh, fiction screenplay poetry and I think you could also do creative non-fiction like memoir or something like that and actually ended up that all of us did straight up fiction so the MA I think yeah we did do a couple of short stories uh things like it was you know maybe be given a theme or a technique or something like that to sort of work with and, and try out for short stories but looking back actually now I think of most of my short stories not all of them but a lot of them actually end up more being tableaus of a bigger story which you know unsurprising for what I was saying earlier about sort of the kinds of ideas I have so yeah I have always sort of struggled to write short stories anyway but yeah we did short stories and um as well as then you had to um submit the first 40,000 words of a novel as your uh, dissertation essentially on this podcast I talk a lot about structure and I don't know the, ma- the macro stuff of getting the stories done and all the kind of tricks you can do for that but I'm, I'm thinking in terms of you know I've not done a masters in creative writing anything like that are there any kind of tips or anything that you got from your masters in terms of writing on a sentence level I'd say between my masters and my BA we did a lot of work on at that kind of level so I'd say I'm probably better at the craft of you know on a sentence level type writing as opposed to I think a lot of the things in terms of structure and sort of working in commercial fiction I'd say is more stuff I've learned after or independently this was maybe where getting to do a bit of poetry during my BA actually helped things like just thinking about the metaphors and similes you use and thinking of and looking at different ways to describe things. So I remember my very first day of my BA, we were given an apple and had to describe it, but it was about actually really looking at the thing. I was trying to sort of go back to that idea, and I did um, study art for a little while before I did that, and, and that's something else you have to do, you know, in, in your drawing and, and your painting and so on. You know, you don't just look at the apple and go, oh, it's, it's green apple. It's about that texture of the surface of it, the way that it catches the light. Is that specific apple actually quite matte? Has it got speckles of brown on the top of it? Actually, when you look at it, because of the kind of light you're in, although it's a green apple, maybe in the shadow, there's a different colour in the shadow. You know, and it's all of those things, you know, it's a cool shadow because maybe the light is warm. And really taking a step back and seeing things and thinking about that, going back to the idea of specificity, I suppose, that was something we spoke about a lot. So I think learning to really be very specific with the words and the description and the likenesses that you draw between things, I think, you know, use use that one right word, not three 
nearly right words. I suppose it's knowing when to do that, knowing when to kind of zoom in and zoom out and how that's yeah. pacing and things. Yeah, once you start getting into things that maybe have specific terminology. So like my books have um, rapier type fights, you know, so you've got fencing in there. I drop in maybe the odd bit of terminology, but generally try not to get too bogged down in it. So I think there's maybe something around keeping to the language that a reader is realistically going to know and need to know. Definitely trying to put yourself in that character's mind, even though, you know, you may be not writing first person. I like to do, I've started doing sort of close third person, so I tend to write in and... You know, if I'm fighting for my life, I'm not thinking, oh, I'm going to do a, I don't know, fencing terms. This is, this is, I'll be revealed as a fraud right now, but hey, <laughs> um, you know, I'm not going to think, oh, I'm putting the finger around the ricasso of my uh, rapier. I do have a rapier sat by my desk, by the way. <laughs> and I'm going to pirouette away from my enemy and blah, blah, blah. And, and then I'm going to execute the such and such maneuver and all that's not what I'm going to be thinking. The things I'm going to be thinking are, oh, crap, there's a cut on my forehead. It's leaking blood into my eye. I have to keep wiping my eye. It's getting sore, and and I'm going to get killed if I can't see what I'm doing or what they're doing. I need to think about my surroundings. I need to keep an eye out for this. What's, how does the floor feel beneath my feet? All of those very visceral things. Mm. So, yeah, there are definitely moments when I zoom right in on the feeling and the physical feelings and also the emotional ones that are at play maybe the specificity of where you know where you're talking about it's a rottweiler rather than a dog you maybe change it for you know you talk about the the teeth and the color of them and the way they gleam in the light and the bit of spittle coming off of its jaw as it's barking at you and about to bite you or, or whatever it is those moments you kind of rather than using the perfect word in a technical way you're using the the perfect words in a more personal and visceral kind of way if that makes any sense yeah yeah it does i think that's my maybe my take on it anyway like i really like close third person mm. that's a really effective way of doing it and i think you you can use the metaphors and things like that to say something about the character and their experience mm. uh, someone who has been brought up in a royal household is going to see an item of clothing in a different way to a serving boy or whatever, you know. And so the descriptions, you can kind of fit it around that character. You know? Yeah, exactly. And the things that they notice, I like doing that with that as well. Yeah. So, like, one of my characters, you know, the main character, she's, you know, been learning to use a rapier since she was about eight, nine, ten years old. Her sidekick-type character, if you like, is from a completely different part of the world, and her background is more like a sort of Viking-esque one. And even then, she was always very bookish. So she was, although she was sort of taught to fight to a certain extent, that wasn't where her interest lies. So, the way that she would describe the things happening in a fight, even if she was using the same weapon, would be very different to the things that the other character would notice. So, yeah, all of those things. I like the way that they can kind of add up. And and I think that's maybe what I really enjoy about longer fiction is that you get the chance to really sink your teeth into that and inhabit that character. And and I think because I enjoy it as a reader as well, I, I love that feeling of you're reading a big, long series that's like four really awesome books and you kind of come to the end and you're actually just really sad to be saying goodbye to those characters that you've been with for maybe 500,000 words in total or something like that. Because your book is 
I mean, I remember talking to you about this, I think it was in February, and you were saying that it was, you know, historical fantasy kind of gaslight, is it gas, gaslight romance, gas lamp romance kind of? Yeah, yeah, gas lamp, I think is sort of, yeah. for me, the closest like subgenre I found still. And, and it was, I, I'm just trying to remember, like Constantinople kind of setting, was that? that yes, yeah. yeah, that's right, well, well remembered. That was back in February, yeah. <laughs> I'm just interested then in terms of, you know, getting the details right and the research. I mean, where does this come in your process? I mean, is this something that you like, right, I need to know about rapiers, I need to know about the history of Constantinople, I need to know all these little details, or is it a case of getting a story and then, yeah, we'll work that out later? Yeah, it's a kind of 18th century fantasy version of Constantinople, and I think I prefer doing that than, than I would straight historical, because if something doesn't work in real-world history for the story I want to tell... I'm kind of stuck with it, and it could mean that that story's never going to be doable. Whereas in fantasy, I'm going to go, well, in my version of Constantinople, that wasn't the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. like alternative <laughs> um, history, fantasy. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I put that disclaimer out there. So I, I'm not trying to be at, like 100% historically accurate on anything, and that's my defence on that one. But um, I kind of like to go through a stage of immersing myself in the feel of the thing I'm writing about or the period I'm writing about. So this city is, like I say, it's 18th century London meets 18th century Constantinople, as it was named then. So I watched quite a lot of films and TV shows set in the 18th century and sort of read bits and pieces of history from those eras and places and just sort of little things I became a bit that I was interested in and maybe became a bit obsessed with. So one of the key things for me is um, the masquerade ball and that kind of idea. And there's actually a, like a pivotal scene in the story that is set in a masquerade ball. And as I was reading up about them, I, I think it was literally just Wikipedia on, on this particular thing that I read. But, you know, I, sort of, I kind of let myself go down the rabbit holes, if you like, because I was building up a picture of what my world was going to be like, what my version of of Europe was going to be like and I just let myself sort of follow rabbit holes and things like the kinds of things you try not to do when you're trying not to procrastinate but I was letting myself do them to kind of like I say see where it take me and one of the things I read about was that I want to say it was King Gustav III of Sweden I think off the top of my head was actually assassinated at a masquerade ball and I just sort of was like found that really interesting and sort of read more and more about what happened you know in that situation so and that gave me a bit of a springboard for things I wanted to write about so although I didn't sit there and go well what was Constantinople like then I sort of read if you like little snippets and tidbits of information that I could A, drop in as little droplets and then B, like I say, it'd be almost like springboards for my own ideas and things like that. So that's what I think I like to do in terms of research. Um, but yeah, not get too bogged down in, oh, well, you know, in Europe in the 18th century, they didn't really have cotton so much because they didn't like to bring it over from America because of politics and blah, blah, blah. You know, that wasn't relevant. <laughs> that actually sounds really similar to how I've been doing my research for my series, actually, is getting the feel and mm -hmm. the immersion so you know i spoke about this episode where she's on a ship and so i was gonna say you've been doing nautical <laughs> fantasy haven't you yeah, I've been reading. i need to hit you up for some recommendations actually because that novella series i've been talking about is my, i'm calling it my pirate series at the oh, moment okay. so sure. i might be hitting you up for some recommendations yeah. <laughs> um so yeah so did, you know reading some nautical fantasy and just generally you know like things like master and commander and watching the film reading the book 
and then going to the Maritime Museum and mm. just kind of having a walk along the seafront and with that in mind of like the feel of the sea and the waves and the salt and you know all that kind of stuff mm. and then just yeah watching videos on youtube which was tours of boats <laughs> like, that, was, that was really cool and you know just doing little things like that where you pick up little details little nuggets of information that mm. like you know knowing about what the people ate on hms victory and the fact that the cheese would have red worms in and stuff like that which is just mm. disgusting but yeah <laughs> that's going to feature in my thing because it's a detail it's realistic and you know i've also figured out the solution of i am writing from my character's perspective so she will refer to it as a boat and not a sloop or a <laughs> or a bar yes or exactly you know, yeah and won't know yeah. That these ropes are called rigging and you know yeah, and like she might at some point hear someone else call it that, so she'll then have kind of maybe learnt that term, or she'll be like, oh, what do you mean by that? But then as a reader, you've almost got like that outside knowledge as well. So yeah, think of it like seasoning, you know, for your little details and things like that. You know, you don't want a ton of pepper and salt on your food. You want, you know, just a little sprinkling of it, and that's what brings things to life without, a bit like we were saying before with the, with action scenes and so without bogging it down in too much accuracy or too much detail that isn't really needed. Yeah, there was one detail that I learned as well, which was how the officers on a lot of the ships in the 18th century, not the normal sailors, but the officers, mm. their hammocks were strung in basically coffins. So they had their own <laughs> coffin with a lid. The lid would be nailed on if they died. And then they just get slung in the sea with that box. But, well, I mean, it's sufficient, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they used to basically sleep on hammocks stretched in coffins, which I just thought, ooh. I yeah. <laughs> so, well, I didn't know that. I'd have heard or seen that one before. That's interesting. Yeah. So li- little things like that where you're just mm. doing the research, you're getting immersed in it, and then, yeah, picking stuff up and not getting, I suppose, getting, not getting bogged down in the details, but then, I suppose if you are writing historical fiction, I think it depends on the genre. It's like when I've written post-apocalyptic stuff, I've made sure to get a beta reader who knows about guns. I'm British, don't you know? So <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, they were like guns. Well, yeah. Never seen one in real life, or yeah. never touched one. So you know, it was good to know that a revolver didn't have a clip and um, mm-hmm. all these little details, and that different guns have different sized bullets. And oh no, you, know, you can't call it. <laughs> bullet for a shotgun it's not even a bullet it's a shell it's a shell yeah. i learned that from Shaun of the dead so <laughs> you know yeah. goes to show where you can pick up information from kind of not giving a knowledgeable reader a chance to kind of be bought out of the story and go that mm-hmm. wouldn't happen i was really lucky and a few years ago i did actually get to go to istanbul for a long weekend and that although by that point i'd finished the first draft yeah and i was editing so, you know, if anything really major came through that was going to ruin the whole story, I was kind of in trouble. But thankfully, that didn't happen. But it did give me a chance to go to some of the places that I'd already planned to use in the story. And, yeah, just pick up little details. You know, some of them didn't end up just being part of the description of the place. They actually sort of came into the plot. So, for example, I went to the Top Cafe Palace and there you kind of in just one of the parts there were these archways that then had a cross beam between them and it's just must have been something to do with the structure or whatever but i kind of noticed that took you know took copious photos and sort of just went away and and then 
in the story that ends up being the method that Quinn uses to get in through this particular window because she climbs up to the cross beam, walks across it and gets in through the window kind of thing. Mm. But I wouldn't have known anything about that if I hadn't had the chance to go. I'm, I doubt it's the sort of thing that you see very clearly in a photo or maybe if you saw it in a photo, you wouldn't think of it as a thing your character could use in that way. And there were places that we went um, when we were visiting that I didn't really know about. And I was like, oh, my God, that needs to be a, a location in the next book or something. So it was amazing. Uh, the Basilica Cistern, which is this underground Roman water cistern that they used for storing all the water and so on. For, you know, they had several of these across the city. But this particular one is now open as a tourist attraction. And it's really interesting. The atmosphere in that place is amazing, even though quite a lot of other people around. You know, because it's dark, it's got water in the bottom with fish in it. It's just got, they've got, they've got these subtle sort of uplights at the bottom of all these columns that have been taken off of ancient buildings to create this cistern it's just really crazy interesting atmospheric place and you never get that necessarily from the photos of it sort of getting to go somewhere like that like you say getting to go down to the sea and really think about the smell and the feel of of the wind and and the quality of the sound of the waves at different areas along the shore and things like that all of those just little details don't spend you know 10 pages describing them you're not like I said you're not Tolkien sorry Tolkien but you know just just adding that just that one sentence sometimes is what brings a place to life or a character or something Mm. just you know saying a few words that then lets the reader kind of fill in the rest but if you get those few words that you do use right they get it makes their picture all the richer and I think this is a case as well of just paying attention to your surroundings because you never know when something is just going to give you a spark of an idea or Mm. give you a solution to something in your stories like the whole reason i am doing this series now is because well i've been thinking about it for over a decade so i think i went it was in 2007 we went to visit holy island in northumberland oh yeah ever been there but it's um, basically a priory and it's tidally locked so you can only get to it at certain times of the day on a tidal causeway and I just thought you could have so much fun with a story based on this and, you know, all the kind of... I was thinking more of a mystery story at the, when I first thought about it, you know, that, that trapped kind of room where people are stuck on a place until the tide goes out or whatever. And the story I'm on now is, you know, it is basically set on a fantasy version of, I don't know, a cross between Holy Island and um, Dover Castle, you know. So it's... Yeah. Uh, where's the best place to find you online then? I can be found at clairesager.com and I'll spell that out because both parts of my name tend to get misspelled. So it's C-L-A-R-E-S-A-G-E-R and I've got links on there to my book. If you want to get that novella, that's on there. And um, I've got a podcast as well, Confessions of a First-Time Writer. And I hope one day I'll be able to make it Confessions of a Full-Time Writer, but for now it's first time. (laughs) And I'm floating around on social media, but there are links on the website for that as well. So remember, you can get the Stop Walking Around book. It's on Kindle and Audible and paperback and all that good stuff. If you haven't done so already, please do take a moment to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts just to help more people get to the show. So thanks again to Claire. So until next time, cheerio. Cheerio.